Let's begin with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we do thank you for the time that you give us to be catechized in the faith, to discuss those things that you reveal in your word, to grow in our understanding of the Christian faith once for all delivered to the saints. And we do thank you for the things that have happened in the church in the past that have given us a better understanding of your glorious gospel. We thank you for the way in which you protect your church from false teaching and from wolves. And help us, O Lord, we pray, to confess the faith with the saints down through the ages and to be faithful in that way. Bless our time together. Bless the time for all the little ones. Continue to instruct them, we pray, Father. For We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're taking a little break from the Heidelberg Catechism uh, for three weeks. And so last week, we, uh, our little break is on the Italian Reformation, and specifically this uh, wonderful book from the Italian Reformation called The Benefit of Christ. <laughs> there is a very good translation. Ugh, benefit of grace. What am I doing? It's that too. Uh, grace, Christ. Uh, benefit of Christ. Uh, the There... Yeah, is there a translation of this book? Because it was an Italian book that, uh, as I pointed out last week, spread like wildfire throughout the country. And uh, it was a small book of only 70 pages that articulated the gospel so well. And uh, it was was without question the the most important book in the the short-lived Italian Reformation. One of the most important books in the whole Protestant Reformation. In many ways, uh, the Council of Trent when it was responding toward uh, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, uh, they weren't only responding to uh, Luther and, uh, and certainly not just Calvin. Calvin wasn't even in his prime yet in the 1540s. Um, they, they were responding a little bit, but greatly they were responding to this little book, and it's gone kind of forgotten and, and lost. Um, wonderful, interesting story. Uh, just give you a little background again. Uh, as we think about the Reformation, I have a little timeline. So we all know October 31st, 1517 is when Martin Luther nails the 95 Theses on the uh, Castle Church door in Wittenberg. And uh, if you're wondering what that is, basically it was just uh, a, a lot of issue that he took with indulgences. So indulgences uh, were are... Well, these were also pl- what are called plenary indulgences. In, in, in Roman Catholic theology, uh, in, in order for you to gain more merit uh, in, and accumulate enough merit with the cooperation of God's grace so that one day you might be justified, you not only have to use the sacraments, but within that, in the sacrament of penance and going to confession, uh, you can sometimes get indulgences. It's like a board game almost. And, uh, and, in, and in these days, horrible things were happening. Plenary indulgences are not just to gain more merit and knock off years of purgatory, but can actually get you out of purgatory into heaven. And the Pope can give these every now and then. The Pope was selling them in, uh, in the early 16th century in order to build St. Peter's Basilica. So if you've ever been to Rome and been to the Basilica, which I think you know, every Protestant should make, if you can, make a trip there someday to see it. Uh, it's so impressive in terms of its art, but it's pretty sickening to think that it was built, uh, it was paid for 
by, uh, largely by the selling of indulgences. So if you, if you paid money uh, to these preachers that went around, <clears throat> uh, people like Johann Tetzel, and, and when the coin in the, in the coffer clings, uh, a soul from purgatory springs, is what they would say. And uh, so Luther is taking exception with these kinds of things, and he writes a, a document that's just saying this is corrupt. But as I pointed out last week, we want to understand that long before 1517, you had reformers like that who were moral reformers. There are many, many, many over the centuries. And that for about two centuries before 1517, you have the church calling for reform. Uh, there was something called the conciliar movement uh, that went on in the, the 13th, 14th, 15th century where it was basically a battle between the bishops and the pope. And people were calling for, you know, godly men in the church were saying, look, we, we need to have the pope held accountable to the, the council of bishops and we need godly men to be bishops. And there were many bishops that were godly. Um, we, we don't want to have uh, an oversimplified, superficial view of the Protestant Reformation. You know, bad guys here, good guys here. Uh, it's more messy than that. And then during that time, you have moral reformers, uh, people like uh, well, uh, John Wycliffe, who also was calling for sola scriptura and you know, translated the Bible. Uh, into uh, common languages. You have people like uh, John Huss, uh, the Bohemian or Czech. Uh, you had people toward the end of the 15th century, uh, like Girolamo Savonarola, who was uh, killed in Florence and uh, calling for the Pope to uh, repent of his immorality. Because during that time, during the period of the Renaissance, that whole period of rebirth and you know, the, the uh, arts being flourishing because people are going back. Uh, there's a, a, a renewal of the classics and interest in the classics. And so you have literature, you have art, you have music just blossoming during the uh, Renaissance period. And you also have the, the Gutenberg printing press, 1455, which you know, allows movable type to print books rapidly. All of these things lead up to the Reformation. The Reformation has to happen because of this. And... Uh, and the popes during that time, were, most of them, were so corrupt. Uh, not, you know, not all popes are the same, but during the period of the Renaissance, you know, in, the, in the 15th century, 14th century, 15th century, into the 16th century, you had some of the worst popes, uh, like the Borgia Pope, the Spaniard, and uh, uh, the, the Medici popes, Leo X. He was the one that excommunicated Luther and was building the uh, basilica on the the cell of indulgences. So this kind of gives you a picture of what's happening, you know, during this time. Luther is already contemplating doctrinal reform, not just moral reform. In, uh, I think, 1513, 14 or so, he's lecturing on the Psalms, and we call that his predestination phase. And so he starts uh, uh, coming to grips with Augustine's view of predestination. And as he's lecturing on the Psalms, you have him uh, expounding on that doctrine, and then in the next couple of years, he starts lecturing on the, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. And, uh, and th you can still get that commentary, but it's not fully Protestant yet. He understands that righteousness is imputed to the believer. Uh, he still is a little fuzzy on how faith relates to works, but it was an important period. And then as he continues over a few years lecturing on Romans, by the time you get to the end of the commentary, you see that he's sharpening his views on faith, sola fide. 
when he gets to 1517, 1518, uh, he's lecturing on Paul's letter to the Galatians and uh, the Hebrews, and uh, you can still get that commentary today and his lectures. They're very clear on law and gospel and sola fide. And so this is what's happening. Then in the 1520s, Luther begins writing books, important books. As I said before, um, uh, Babylonian Captivity of the Church, where he expounds on the sacraments and how Rome was using the sacraments to tyrannize the people, you know, withholding them from the kingdom of God in unbiblical ways, and writes uh, Freedom of the Christian, a wonderful book on law and gospel, writes uh, on Christian nobility. And those books begin spreading around Europe and into Italy. And uh, Italy, during the 1520s, begins to experience a reformation. And as I I, uh, commented last week, that didn't mean that uh, Reformed and Presbyterian churches started popping up in in Italy. They never did. Uh, They were reformers on the inside trying to bring reformation because that's what reformation means. It doesn't mean revolution. Um, Reformation means let's reform the church. And what was the church in the West at that time? It was the Roman Catholic Church. And so you can go to some of these uh, great cathedrals. Uh, my, probably my favorite cathedral, it's a toss-up. It's between, they're both in Florence. I've been in a lot of cathedrals in Italy. Every time I get an opportunity to go to one, I want to go see it. Uh, Santa Croce is a beautiful cathedral. That's where you know, all the famous people are buried, uh, the uh, scientists and Michelangelo and uh, Galileo and, and uh, um, famous people. Rome assembled all of their graves there to say, you know, look how powerful we are. But it's a beautiful cathedral. And there were sermons preached on justification by faith alone there during the 1520s and 1530s. Where else would they be preached? So again, there's no, you know, uh, Christ Reformed Church Florence in uh, the 1520s. People are trying to reform it from within. And the Italian reformers had no intention of leaving the Roman Catholic Church. They just thought that was Anabaptist and crazy. So we have to appreciate where they're at in those days. Um, You have people like the Spaniard Juan de Valdez, who flees Spain in the 1530s, comes to Italy, and writes in Italian a book on justification begins to connect with all the important people in Italy who are believing justification by faith alone. He gets a house in Naples and uh, starts having meetings there. And you have this circle of lights that are, are meeting with Juan de Valdez, an important, important reformer. Uh, they're all reading Luther, but Valdez is also, there's a lot of scholarships done showing that Valdez also came to many of the conclusions on his own. And he's meeting with people like uh, Pietro Carnesecchi, uh, Marc Antonio Flaminio. I know those names probably don't ring a bell to us, but these are important people in, during the Reformation. Uh, Julia Gonzaga, a powerful princess who was very reformed, commissioned reformed books to be written and is connecting people. Uh, Peter Martyr Vermigli, you might recognize that name. Uh, he's one of the few that did flee. And, uh, and so during the 1530s, there's a blossoming. There was also this obscure Benedictine monk uh, by the name of Benedetto Fontanini. And uh, you know, nobody really knows that name today, but he's the one that wrote The Benefit of Christ. 
And uh, so in the 1530s, and he was in monasteries, because in monasteries during the, uh, the uh, 1520s, 1530s, many of them, especially the Benedictine monks, uh, they became places of study. And so uh, particularly the Benedictine monks who belonged to this group of monasteries called the Cassanese Congregation, they were devoted to the study of Paul's epistles and they were reading Luther's stuff. And, you know, reading in 1536 is when Calvin writes his first little document of uh, the Institutes of Christian Religion. Calvin's still quite young. Remember, you know, Calvin's, uh, Luther's born in the 1480s. Calvin's not born until 1509. So he's actually kind of a second-generation reformer um, and doesn't write the Institutes, his first edition, until 1536. So by that time, the Reformation has been going for quite some, for about 20 years in Italy. Books are pouring in through Venice, which was a merchant town, and it was known for its progressive thinking, and they would just spread like crazy. Well, obviously, uh, Rome is very concerned about this uh, because they, you know, and next week we'll have our slideshow, and I'll show a map of what Italy looked like. It was not a unified country. It was several republics. You had the Kingdom of Naples. You had the Republic of Venice, the Republic of Florence, and you had the Papal States. So the Pope actually owned a lot of Italy and had his own army. It was just a bizarre time. And uh, they're very concerned about these teachings that are floating around. And Rome does not have an official doctrine on justification by faith alone. Uh, Not until... Uh, 1547, when they uh, uh, anathematized the doctrine of justification by faith alone at the Council of Trent. Well, it's taking off the Reformation during this time, and then by the time you get to 1541, that's a very dark year for Italy. Because several things happen. Um, Juan de Valdez dies and uh, so does one of the cardinals. There were a couple of cardinals that believed in justification by faith alone. A very important cardinal named uh, Gaspero Contarini, Cardinal Contarini. And Cardinal Contarini was the guy that went to Regensburg at a colloquy, uh, a big meeting between Protestant leaders and Roman Catholic leaders. He was the papal delegate to try to bring together Rome and the Reformation, to, to try to you know, bring about reforms and see, is there a way for us to maybe start a Lutheran order of monks and, uh, you know, have, not have a split? It was a last-ditch effort, but the thing that they could not agree on, of course, was sola fide. And Contarini did a lot. You'll, you'll meet some uh, Protestant church historians that will say, oh, you know, he wasn't really Protestant and this, that, and the other, but... Um, you know, at the end of the day, if you have a cardinal who believes justification sola fide and law and gospel, that's pretty great. And he was doing what he could to try to try to keep the church together because Jesus wants his church to be together. He prayed, you know, may they be one as you and I are one, not that we would be all factioned and balkanized. And that's kind of the dark side of the Reformation, unfortunately, that there's a zillion different uh, denominations and, uh, and so they were trying to, some of these guys were trying to bring some unity and maintain, but you couldn't. That's the problem. Unless Rome was willing to adopt justification by faith alone and, and those solas 
as official church doctrine. So in 1541, the colloquy of Regensburg fails to produce that unity. One day Valdez dies. Then in 1542, Contarini dies. And you have the Roman Inquisition. So they're like, okay, it's not going to work. Guys like uh, uh, Pietro Carafa, who led this effort to wipe out Protestants. He was like Saul of Tarsus, you know, to the Christians. Uh, Once they realized that this is not going to produce the union, then you have guys that were really set on extinguishing the flame of... uh, of Reformed doctrine, uh, the solas, they institute the uh, Roman Inquisition, which made that doctrine illegal, books like that illegal. And that's what happens the following year. This book appears on the shelves of booksellers, and it's written anonymously. There's no name attached to it, and it takes off. It's written not in Latin, like the Institutes were and, and Luther's stuff was, it's written in Italian, and beautiful Italian. Simple Italian, but so poetic. And the reason why, we found out later, is because this monk, Benedetto Fontanini, who wrote it in secret, and he was part of Valdez's Circle of Lights, he gave the manuscript to some of the guys in that circle to read, guys like Pietro Canasecchi, who ended up being martyred for the faith. Uh, and then they said, okay, Let's give it now to Marcantonio Flaminio, who was a famous poet. And these guys were big, heavy hitters. Uh, Carnesecchi, Flaminio, they worked in the papal court. They were known by princes and kings. These were some of the most brilliant men in Italy at that time. And they were, they were Protestants. They were Reformed. Um, but they were trying to reform from within the church. They give the manuscript to Flaminio, this poet, who polishes it up. So it's written by uh, Fontanini, Benedetto Fontanini, and polished by Marcantonio Flaminio. And uh, then it hits the press in 1543, and within six years, from 1543 to 1549, it sells over 40,000 copies, which in those days would be like over a million today. It was just impressive number because it took a long time. If anybody's seen an old printing press from the 16th century, it's amazing. If you go look at one of those, you'll never complain about your slow computer or your printer not working again. You would go page by page. You had letter by letter in these big steel letters, right? And you would put the letter, it was backwards, and then get the next letter, you know, next letter, Next letter, okay, that's one word. And then, you know, space, next letter, next letter. And you did that all the way for one page. It's time-consuming. Then they would take a page, usually made from cotton, not from wood pulp like this, which, by the way, your books that you have now with these pages, they're not going to exist in 100 years or 200 years. They're going to fall apart. Uh, The reason why I have that, you know, some of those old books from uh, 16th, 17th, 18th century is because it's cotton. They call it rag paper. And it's very expensive, but it lasts for hundreds of years. They would lay that piece on top of wet. They would would roll it with ink, and then they would lay that piece down, and then they would press it. And they pull it up. Now you got one page. 
And so they would print a whole bunch of those pages, okay? And then you got to do the other side, you know, with the next, and you got to lay out the words. Time-consuming. Imagine 40,000 books being sold. See, we just have, we have to have an appreciation for this. Um, that's a big deal. And it's translated into, uh, during this period, it's translated into English, uh, into Spanish, into French, and Croatian. And so the Reformation's taken off around Europe, and this is a big one. Uh, king Edward VI, uh, Protestant uh, king of England, uh, whom uh, Thomas Cramner uh, had a big hand in helping, uh, he said that, that was his favorite, this was his favorite uh, piece of devotional literature. In 1546, 1546, during this period, the Council of Trent condemns it because they begin meeting. And in 1549, they place it on the index of prohibited books, and it's burned everywhere throughout Italy. And so you can't find an Italian copy. Um, and then the, the Reformation pretty much ends in, in Italy. Um, 1542, Peter Martyr Vermili flees. Uh, Okino and a few others flee. Others go underground. Others recant, like Reginald Pohl, a cardinal. He recants of, of holding to justification by faith alone and then becomes an opponent to the Reformation. Meanwhile, after this time, the Reformation is still gaining traction in places like England, Germany, Switzerland, the Netherlands. And uh, when was the Heidelberg Catechism written? Without looking. You people who confess the Heidelberg Catechism. 1563. That's a long time later. That's 20 years later. When was the Belgic Confession written? Anybody know? Y'all should know this stuff. It's your confession. 1561. 1561. Now look at that. See, sometimes I think because we don't have a ba our bearings on history, we just see 1563 and well, I don't know what that means. Um, but that comes 20 years after the benefit of Christ is written and long after the Council of Trent and long after the Reformation has been crushed in Italy. But it's flourishing in places that we now call Germany and Switzerland because uh, uh, Geneva, in particular, and other places, are free republics where Calvin taught and you, you, you had freedom to be able to um, uh, uh, be Protestant. Actually, it wasn't really freedom of religion. You were forced to be Protestant or you were thrown in jail. Um, and that's, there's not good things about that. But this gives you an idea of you know, where that falls. 1564, Calvin dies. And so that comes quite a, bit, quite a bit later, you can see, from the time that the Reformation, a lot of time had passed, a couple of decades. So, and then, as I said before, nobody knows who wrote this book. Uh, it's extinguished. Its author is uh, anonymous. And in, uh, it's not until uh, the 1800s. Uh, there's a couple different dates. 1843 is one date that's thrown out, and uh, I think 1845 is another date, when a copy is found at St. John's College in Cambridge, an Italian copy. None had been, had been seen in 300 years. Renews interest in this book and its author, and 
And at that time, scholars begin looking into uh, who, who was associated with this book. And in 1870, the trial of Pietro Carnesecchi, uh, when he was uh, put on trial under the Roman Inquisition in 1567, is published. And under torture, he, uh, he tells his inquisitors who it was that wrote the book. And he says it was uh, Don Benedetto, uh, this monk from uh, Mantua. And uh, he, was, and he gave it to Marc Antonio Flaminio. Uh, by this time, those guys are dead. And, uh, and then uh, Carnesecchi was condemned uh, for things all of us would be condemned for, holding to the solas, uh, holding to law gospel, holding to you know, the benefit of Christ. And gives, a, gives his life in 1567. But that was kept hush-hush and quiet until 1870 when that trial was, uh, was published. And you can still buy a copy of it today, the trial. So that kind of gives you an idea. And then last week we began looking at the, the book itself. And so we just want to finish that up this week. And then next week I'll have pictures. We all like pictures. And we can look at um, some pictures of, of different places that Benedetto was at and different places that are happening, or places that... Important things were happening during the time of the Italian Reformation. But before we look at the rest of the book, any questions on just the, the lay of the land for the Italian Reformation? Sure. His name is Benedetto, which means blessing. It's my, uh, my great, my great, great grandfather was named Benedetto. Uh, Benedetto Zappa came here from uh, Abruzzo, Italy. I don't know why I'm telling you that, but... And his last name was Fontanini. And he gave it to one Mark Antonio Flaminio. And then another guy that's very important that I'll show you, uh, we'll talk more about next week, is uh, Pietro Carnasecchi. And he's the one that read the manuscript. He works in the papal court, as does Flaminio. And he's betrayed by the Medicis and ends up being tortured and uh, killed in 1567. He refused to leave Italy. He was, everybody kept begging him, go to Switzerland, go to Strasbourg, go to Geneva, go to England. And there's these great letters that he wrote. Yeah, you can uh, read a lot on these guys. You can read his poetry, Flaminio. And Carnesecchi just said, I can't do it. I can't leave. And everybody's begging him, leave, you're going to die. And he did die. Um, but for him, it just, he said, there's no way that I'll leave Italy. And, uh, and I won't leave the church. I'm still going to try to fight to bring reformation to the church. Uh, he paid for it with his life. Um, I don't know which is better. You know, in some cases, you know, we have guys that left. Uh, they fled and said, well, you know, we, we can't do anything here. Um, and, and because they did, we have great writings and, you know, the works of Vermigli and the Tertinis and, um, But, you know, w- which is better? Sometimes I think we flee too easily and we, we quit too easily. Something goes wrong in the church and poof, we're gone without sticking it out. And... Uh, you know, in my opinion, Carnesecchi is, uh, in, in many ways, courageous. And, you know, it was a martyr for the faith. So, 
right, right. Yeah, right, right. Well, the, the, you have to remember that um, it, it, throughout the Middle Ages, from the time of Constantine in the 4th century all the way and, and through the Reformation, the church and the state are wed together. And so um, heresy is a capital crime. It's a crime punishable by the law. And, and we can say that's horrible and horrible what um, the Roman Catholic Church did. And indeed it is. Um, but Protestants did it too. They did it in Geneva. Um, and this is another reason why the American experiment, this is one of the reasons why the American experiment is a beautiful thing, that you have this distinction and separation of the church and the state so that they're not wed together. You don't want the church and the state wed together. This is what ends up happening. Um, heresy becomes a capital punishment and you burn. The, the idea of being burnt at the stake was perceived to be somewhat merciful because that way as the, uh, you know, the kindling was stacked around you and it was lit on fire, you had a sense of where you were headed and you might repent right there. That was the belief. Um, so, yeah. They burned Michael Servetus in Geneva. Um, he was a heretic. He was an anti-Trinitarian. Brilliant, brilliant thinker. He's the guy that discovered the circulatory system. And uh, they were all brilliant thinkers. And he came to Geneva, and Calvin corresponded with him and said, don't come to Geneva. It's not going to go well for you. And, yeah, the city council condemned him. And, and Calvin did agree. I should be condemned because in those days, that's, that's what it was. You, you know, church discipline in Geneva... So you don't want to think of Geneva as like the golden age. It wasn't. Um, elders in Geneva didn't just have districts. You had a zone of the city that you were in charge of. So if Bob Hannibal's dog is barking, I'm not kidding, I've read this stuff. His dog is barking, um, they would call up the elders. And one of the elders would have to go over there and, you know, or, hey, John Weddle's drunk again. And, uh, you know, he slapped Edwina. Oh, boy. Elders go over there. They take the magistrate. They throw him in jail. And uh, so everything's a punishment. And you, read, you can read the minutes from Geneva, the consistory minutes. It's, it's hilarious. I mean, uh, you know, Monjour Favre was caught with Mademoiselle so-and-so in fornication. Um, he's repented, but uh, 10 days in, the, in jail on bread and water alone. And, uh, you know, or three days with no bread, only water. And I don't know, maybe church discipline would be more effective that way. And, uh, you know, or they wouldn't fine. They would fine people constantly. So you get fined and you'd have to pay. Um, but, yeah, can you imagine? So what's the flip side? Well, you know, we have um, freedom in that way. But sometimes we have too much freedom, I think. I mean, if things go wrong, pff, I'm gone. And, you know screw you, you can't do anything to me. And we just get in our car and we go down to the next, the next uh, church. And uh, yeah, and at the end of the day, you know, we can't do anything about it. Um, we can only do what God has given us to do, which is to exercise the keys of the kingdom. Um, because we're not the law. The law is the one that is supposed to find people, throw them in jail, and, you know, exercise capital punishment, not the church. But that's, that's how you, they justify it, is because the two are joined together. So think about that next time you want a Christian nation. Who's Christian nation? How do you know you're going to be on the right side of that Christian nation? What if, you know, 
the doctrine of justification and faith alone in a Christian nation was illegal. You don't want that. You want a secular nation. Secular. You want a secular nation. You want coexist. You don't want co-believe. You want coexist. If you don't have coexist, what do you have? Somebody forcing you to believe what they believe. Now you got problems. You got to think about that before you start shaking the finger too much. We don't believe in co-believe, but I'm all for coexist. I like it that the other religions can coexist with me and that I have rights as a Christian and that nobody can tell me I can't believe this or that another version of Christianity is forced upon me. This is what you get. This is what you get. And a lot of Americans don't understand this because we don't know history. We just are awful at history. We're only thinking about the future and gadgets and our square footage. And we're not th- we don't know the past. And the, the past shows us that you, you don't want that. You don't want some guy's version of a, of a Christian nation. So... That the what wasn't launched earlier? I'm sorry, I'm missing that word in there. The Inquisition. Oh, yeah, that's a good question. That's a very good question. Yeah, was it because of cardinals like Contarini and Reginald Pohl that the Inquisition wasn't launched earlier? I mean, from what I've read, what's interesting is that during this time, you know, you have some people, it's, it, there's a lot of things happening. You have some people freaking out over Luther's writings and Valdez's writings. Um, you have other people saying, hey, this is great stuff. So there's uh, discussion and debate happening in the universities, in the monasteries. And it, there's only some people who think it's a big threat. Um, now, Luther is excommunicated you know, pretty early by the Pope. But everybody knows that there has to be some, some at least moral reform in the church. That's a pretty much given at that time, especially if you have, you have popes with all these mistresses and illegitimate children and huge bank accounts. And it was just obvious to everybody that things were bad. So it's a messy, confusing time. But you have all these writings coming out during this time that, that many people are debating and discussing. How much people like Contarini had in delaying an inquisition is an interesting question. You know, I mean, you, you could look at They were part of this group called the Spirituali in Italy, and so was Carafa, Carafa, Pietro Carafa, this guy's name, Carafa, he's the bad guy of all, he's he's the Saul of Tarsus. He is is initially in the the circle of these guys, and he's he's part of a group, a different group, with uh, Cardinal Contorini, and, and he's a cardinal too and Reginald Pohl, and they're all concerned about reform of the church, but these guys are also concerned about doctrinal reformation, not just moral reformation. He's only concerned about moral reformation. And, uh, and so there is some give and take between the two, and when Contarini dies, and, uh, this, and, and Regensburg fails, this guy takes that as a whole new mission and says, okay, we're going to... And he becomes, he's, he's appointed the head of the Inquisition. He later becomes Pope. 
and was just a cruel and ruthless pope. However, he wasn't immoral. He wasn't immoral, like uh, the Borgia Pope and uh, the Medici Pope. He was a moral guy, but he was an anti-Protestant. So you've got to understand what you're looking at here. He's like a Pharisee. You know, a lot of the Pharisees were moral guys, but they were legalists and uh, didn't believe the gospel. It was the Sadducees that were the liberals. This guy was extremely conservative. Do you want his Christian nation? He's a moral guy. Hey, he, he's going to set the boundaries on homosexuality and all that stuff. And he's going to set the boundaries on you, too. So this is why we've got to be really careful um, when we think about the relationship between the church and the state. Uh, because you don't, you don't want tyranny. You do want freedom. But that means freedom for others as well. And so how do we win them? Not by legislation, not by forcing them to be Christians, not by declaring San Diego or California or the United States a Christian nation, but by winning them with the sword of the Spirit, with the gospel. That's the only thing that has ever won people over. I want to read just a few more uh, passages to you from um, The Benefit of Christ because it's so good. I mentioned how it's only six chapters. It's very short. Chapter 1 is about original sin. Chapter 2 is about the law. Chapter 3 is about uh, imputed righteousness. In chapter 4, Benedetto elaborates on the effects of true faith in the life of the believer. So not only do we receive the righteousness of Christ through faith alone, but by this same faith, we are also brought into union with Christ. And this is a big theme for him. Uh, this, is, this is part of the great benefit. The benefit of Christ is his righteousness that's given to us. And, uh, but it also creates a new life in union with Christ. And so he turns to the New Testament's description of the church as the bride of Christ. Because Christ has taken us to be his bride, he has taken our dowry, if you will, of sin and shame, in an exchange given us his glorious inheritance. Listen to this beautiful quote. So this is from a Benedictine monk in Italy in 1543. Just as the dowry of the wife becomes the property of her husband... So likewise, the wife speaks of her husband's house and all his wealth as hers. Jesus Christ says, the dowry of a man's soul has become mine. That is to say, all the sins and transgressions of the law, all God's wrath against man, all the boldness of the devil over man, all the prison and torture of hell, and all the soul's other evils have become mine, says Christ. They are in my power to do what I want with them. So it is my will to deal with them as I wish. Therefore, I blot out the handwriting of ordinances which is against the soul of my wife. I take it out of the way. I fasten it to my cross in my own body. And in the same way, I spoil principalities and powers. I make a show of them openly and triumph over them, consume and annihilate them utterly. You see how poetic it is. In response, the bride also says with the greatest joy, the realms and kingdoms of my most dear husband and Savior belong to me. By him, I am heir of heaven. My husband's riches, that is to say, his holiness, his innocence, his righteousness, and his Godhead, together with all his virtue and might, are my property. Therefore, in him, I am holy, unblemished, 
righteous and godly. There is not a stain on me. I am shapely and beautiful because my lawful husband has no blemish but is stalwart and handsome. Since he is completely mine, all his qualities are consequently mine. Because they are pure and holy, it follows that I have also become pure and holy. So you see what he's doing? He's talking about the exchange. Our sin for Christ's righteousness. Christ takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. But imagine you're in, you know, you're in the 16th century when books are a precious thing, and this little book of 70 pages that somebody gives you, written in your native tongue, you're reading it like that, that's good stuff. You're starting to pass that around. Man, you've got to read this. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Listen to how he puts it. And it just spreads, takes off. And this is why Rome is freaking out, because people are becoming Protestant all over the nation. And then he goes on. He says, therefore, when a man says, listen to how good this is. It's so comforting. Jesus Christ has fasted. Jesus Christ has prayed. Jesus Christ was heard of the Father. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Jesus Christ drove devils out of men. Jesus Christ healed the sick, died, rose again, ascended into heaven. Then a man can likewise say that a Christian has done all these same works. For the works of Christ are the works of a Christian. And he has done them all for the Christian." Indeed, a man can truly say that the Christian has been nailed to the cross, buried, raised again, and ascended into heaven, and been made as a child of God. He is a participant of the divine nature. He, and he's, he's drawing on Luther. There's a, there's a lot of Luther in what he's saying. That in other words, because I have the righteousness of Christ, I, I, the, what Christ has earned has now been given to me. And the Father looks at me the way he looks at Jesus Christ. I can't be thrown out of heaven any sooner than Christ can be thrown out of heaven. I mean, getting our minds around that, it just seems too good to be true. But that's the benefit of Christ. That's the benefit of Christ. And this is what had been, you know, obscured for centuries in the Roman Catholic Church. So he goes on in that chapter. It's just wonderful about the exchange, the great exchange. In chapter 5, um, he talks a little bit more about the relationship of faith and works. And then in the last chapter, he, deal, he gives you four ways of, uh, of help for the troubled conscience. So it's guilt, grace, gratitude in his book. And then he adds a chapter on here are some remedies for the troubled soul. And he says there's four things we can do. There's prayer. There's remembering your baptism. There's frequent use of the Lord's Supper. And there's meditation on the doctrine of predestination. Now, you know, we would expect, I think, for Benedetto to say, well, what about preaching? The preaching of the word. We want that there too. But keep in mind who he is. He's a, he's a monk and he and and he you know it's not fully developed yet how you know that there would be uh that in the church there would be a regular preaching of the word a preaching of the gospel uh he sees that as what we get in the lord's supper if we understand what the lord's supper is and boy he's for frequent use of the lord's supper and so we have to again take him where he's at and his time and just benefit from what he gives us uh, one thing, though, remembering the baptism is really great. I think we forget to do that. If we think that as surely as I have been baptized, surely as 
water touched my body, Christ has washed away my sins. You know, often we, I think we tend to look at baptism as if it's just kind of an empty ritual. You know, it's sort of like this symbolic thing that gets you into the church. But we don't realize that it, it is a means of grace. That the Holy Spirit uses that as I think, as surely as I have been baptized, that water washes away dirt from my body, Christ has washed my soul with his blood. Where he's really good is on the supper. On the supper. He says this, when the Christian feels the anxieties of doubt, temptation, fear, let him return to celebrate the Holy Sacrament with a good heart and with stout courage. Let him receive it devoutly. Let him say in his heart and answer his enemies, I confess I deserve a thousand hells and eternal deaths because of the great sins I have committed. But when I reflect on this heavenly sacrament which I receive now, I am assured of the forgiveness of all my past misdoings and of my atonement with God for all time. If I look to my own deeds, there is no doubt that I must acknowledge myself to be a sinner and condemn myself. Nor will my conscience ever be quiet if I am tempted to think my sins are pardoned because of my good deeds. But when I look to the promises and covenant of God, He assures me of the forgiveness of my sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am certain of this, for He has made promises and covenants which cannot lie or deceive. Through this steadfast faith, I become righteous by Christ's righteousness. So, I mean, this is some of the best stuff you can read in terms of uh, what the sacrament is and how our assurance is found in the gospel which the Lord's Supper communicates and some of the best stuff you can ever read on uh, law and gospel. And, uh, and as I said, we're working on getting a good translation into print. There's a couple floating around out there which aren't true translations. They are transliterations. You understand the difference? A transliteration uh, is where they take the English translation from the 16th century and they try to update that language for modern use. The problem is, is that sometimes you're not getting words for what they really are. Um, people think that we do that with the Bible. We don't. We, we translate the Bible from Greek and from Hebrew into modern English. We don't say, well, let's take the, an, an old English version and try to update it a little bit That's the, you know, and give the thought. Um, that's called a transliteration. And you always want to know when you're reading that that it, you might, there's kind of a, a barrier between you and the, um, the original author's intent. And so, unfortunately, that's the only thing that's floating around right now in English. Um, there's great Italian uh, translations that are still floating around, uh, but we're working on uh, getting one in English, uh, and God willing, that'll be out in you know, the next year or two. So, any questions? Well, Loyola, it's always a hard word to say, uh, Loyola, Ignatius Loyola, is uh, considered the founder of the Jesuits. And the Jesuit is a, an order of monks that are uh, really raised up to be um, apologists in the, what's called the Counter-Reformation. So the Counter-Reformation really begins in the 1540s. And the Counter-Reformation takes place in Italy. It's in Italy. I mean, it's the, and they were successful. It's all, they were also very successful in Spain. 
and you know, squashed the Reformation in Spain. But Spain did at least get more traction than Italy. And Loyola is, yeah, the, the founder you know, of uh, the Jesuits. USD is a Jesuit school. However, you know, we, have a we have a USD student here. Um, most USD students don't really know that it's a Jesuit school or understand like all the history there. Um, I don't, it's not like a hostile place toward, I mean, there may be some faculty members. But I had a friend, who, I've had two friends who were uh, faculty members there and they said, no, it's pretty, they, it, they've come pretty far away from the original uh, uh, Jesuit hostility toward Christianity. Just as you have that with popes. The current pope right now just thinks everybody's going to heaven, you know, and everything's good. The previous pope was not that way. He was more of a, a Protestant's pope in the sense that he would say, no, you're excommunicated. You know, we would excommunicate Luther. Um, this guy, you know, just says, hey, it's, we're all going to be, we're all children of God and we're all going to make it in the end. Loyola was definitely not that kind of a guy. All right. Well, if there's no other questions, then uh, next week we'll have a slideshow, and I think it'll be a lot of fun. And uh, hopefully this gives you a, a good understanding of what happened in Italy. And, uh, and then also it gives us, I think, good, good encouragement for the mission work that we are involved in now in that country uh, to see uh, a Protestant denomination flourish. And, and, and what a blessing it is for us to be part of that. It's a lot of work. Uh, it's a lot of sacrifice, but, um, you know, not a bad way for us to be spent in our lives uh, to see the Reformation make a re-entrance now uh, into that country. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the time that you've given us. We pray that it would be useful in the things that we learn about history and the past, and also, Lord, the, the great benefit of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We do thank you, Father, for what he has given us that we have received his inheritance and that he took the dowry of our sin and shame and buried it in his death. And we thank you that we stand now before you, clothed in his merit. And we thank you for those who made that clear, who made the teaching of your word clear to us so that we could understand the good news and the great benefit of your Son and our Savior. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.